Good morning, everyone. Okay, so it's um, my job to finish this off. Um, finish off the Kings. Um, it's actually been good practice to me. I'm, I'm teaching Kings in a couple of weeks. So this is, it's good for me. <laughs> Refresher as well. Um, so I have Hoshia and Zedekiah. And these two are the two final kings of each kingdom. So Hoshia is the last king of Israel, and Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. Even though they live like 150 or so years apart, um, they are the last two kings of the two kingdoms. So that's why we're looking at them together. So if you remember, um, I kind of used the model of um, comparing two kings, just like Plutarch did in his old book when he compared um, a character from Greek history and a character of Romans that were similar, and similar faults and similar victories as well. And so I used that, and I compared Jeroboam the first with David, who is very, like, if you like, like I said, you remember, Jeroboam's kind of like the anti-David in Scripture. And so I'm using the same idea um, for this one, because actually the idea I had was for this sermon. I just decided to use it for the first one anyway. Um, so I'm going to compare both of these kings side by side. Um, so that does mean a little bit of jumping back and forth, I'm afraid. Um, so what we need to do first is have some history lessons. Yay! Okay, good. That's the kind of answer we're looking for. Um, so here's a map. And here you see this is Hoshia's time, or just before Hoshia's time. So I want to kind of show you what happened just before Hoshia became king, why he's in the situation that he's in. Now, at the time... The big bad guys in the region were the Assyrians. Now, they'd been quiet for a while because Jonah had gone up there and scared the life out of them and got them to all repent. Um, but after a while, they got back to their normal tricks, was to, which was to go around the world killing people and scaring people to death. Um, and they had a new king with the quite fun name Tiglath-Pileser III, or Tiggy P3, as I like to call him. <laughs> Now, actually, you can see, you see the yellow part? That was Assyria when he became king. And the green bit was Assyria when he died. So he kind of like almost quadrupled the size of the Assyrian Empire during his reign. So he was one of the most successful and also one of the most feared Assyrian rulers. Now, because he was getting strong, all the other countries started to get scared because they started to think, okay, we're next. He's going to attack us. He's going to make us part of his empire, whether we like it or not. And so there were two kings in, particularly, in particular, Rezin, who was king of Damascus, and Pekah, who was king of Israel. And what they decided to do was to make an alliance against Assyria. Because they'd read their history books, because their two countries had done this 100 years ago, before this, and they actually stopped the Assyrians advancing into the kingdom. So they thought, it worked before, let's do it again. And so they made this alliance, and it's called, in history calls it the Syro-Ephraimatic Alliance, because it has got to have a fancy name, hasn't it? These things, you can't have a normal name. So it's a Syro-Ephraimatic Alliance. As you can see, it led to a war. And the reason it led to a war, actually, that was them threatening, that was them joining an alliance. Okay. 
The reason it led to a war is because they wanted Judah to join their alliance. And the king of Judah at the time was Ahaz, not one of the best kings of Judah. Um, And he didn't want to join the alliance against Assyria. Judah was way down in the south. The Assyrians were a distant threat. They'd have to get through um, Syria and Israel and other countries before they got anywhere near Judah. So they weren't worried. Said, we don't want to upset Tiglath-Pileser. He's big. He's scary. You have your alliance. We don't want anything to do with it. But Rezin and Pekah, they needed Ahaz. Um, Judah was quite rich at the time. It had quite a lot of money because left over from um, at, um, Uzziah, King Uzziah, who was a very successful king. Um, so they had a lot of resources that they needed, so they wanted to join. So because they basically said, you are going to join our alliance, whether you like it or not. And we're going to go to war with you in order that you can join and fight with us. Because they wanted to get rid of Ahaz and put somebody else on the throne of Jerusalem who they could control. Um, now, Ahaz, at this point, was in conversation with Isaiah. And what Isaiah was saying, don't worry about these two little kings. Within 10 odd years or so, they'll both be dead. Don't worry about them. Yahweh is your salvation. Submit to God. It'll be okay. And so what does Ahaz do? Well, he goes and talks to Tiglath-Pileser. That he feels threatened by these two, two kings. So he goes to Tiglath and says, Let's, I will be your servant. I will be your vassal. Please protect me from Israel and the Syrians. Um, So instead of going to his true king, God, he goes to a foreign king, king, the king of Assyria, Tiglath. Now, unfortunately for this entire region, this is exactly what Tiglath's been waiting for. He now has this perfect excuse to get his army together and attack everybody because all these little countries are attacking his good little servant, Ahaz. And so, Tiglath attacks. Rezin and Pekah are both killed. Um, The nation of Syria, or Aram, based around Damascus, is totally destroyed. Damascus falls. And and like I said, Pekah is killed. Catching up. And because of this, he actually takes half of Israel. All all of Israel that was on the east of the Jordan, Tiglath takes as his own and takes the people who live there into exile. And then he makes a new king of Israel. And that's where Hoshea comes into the story. So Hoshea, he wasn't wasn't of Pekah's family. He wasn't of any of the families that had ruled Israel. He was this guy that Tiglath chose to be king of Israel. And And he was meant to be like Tiglath's little puppet sitting in the throne of Samaria, ruling Israel, being a nice, good servant, a good vassal of Assyria, paying his taxes and being helpful. Um, Just like Ahaz was in the south. So essentially, because of this war, Assyria now owns both Israel and Judah. Both Hoshea and Ahaz are both vassal kings of Tiglath-Pileser. So that's who Hoshea is. Hoshea, um, he wasn't of a ruling family. He wasn't, like, he wasn't chosen by God to be king. He wasn't even chosen by the people to be king. He was actually chosen by a foreign ruler to be king of Israel. 
Okay? Do all, are we all following that? It's actually one of the most confusing parts of Israel's history, so I've just given you the bare minimum details <laughs> so that you can cope. Okay. Now, fast forward a century or two. Um, at this point, Israel no longer exists. It's gone. We're just dealing with Judah. And this is the situation before Zedekiah become king, becomes king. Now, at this time, um, oh, that arrow. Ignore that arrow. It shouldn't be there. I thought I corrected that, but obviously I didn't. Okay. There were two kingdoms who kind of got into another alliance together, the Babylonians and the Medes or Media. And they made an alliance against what was left of Assyria. Assyria has got weaker at this point, but they wanted to get rid of Assyria and take its lands and destroy them. So the Babylonians and the Medes were attacking Assyria. So Assyria made an alliance with Egypt. Even though they were lifelong enemies, they decided to make an alliance. So you have these two groups of nations, Babylon and the Medes on one side, and um, the Assyrians and the Egyptians on the other, and they're fighting. And of course, right in the middle between them is Judah. And at this point, it's Josiah is king that um, Jean was talking about last week. So the best king Judah ever had, apart from David, is the king at this critical moment in history. Um, but unfortunately, he made a decision, his last decision, which was probably his worst. He decided to get involved in this war, and he decided to stop the Egyptians helping the Assyrians. Um, we don't know exactly why. It might be because there was such a hatred of Assyria in Judah because of the history that he didn't want anyone to help Assyria live and wanted them to die. But anyway, Josiah is killed on, on the, when the Egyptian army is on the way up to help the Assyrians. And so exactly when they need it, they've lost their best ruler. Now, at this point, kind, there's kind of like a stalemate in the war. Assyria is almost destroyed, but the Egyptian help kind of keeps them going for a couple more years. But most of their land is now owned by the Babylonians and the Medes. Now, this is when that arrow is supposed to appear, because the Medes says, well, that was fun, we're going home. And they, do, they don't get involved in this war anymore. But the Babylonians have got a new king called Nebuchadnezzar, which you've probably heard of. Now, he wants to keep this war going. He wants to destroy Assyria. So a few years later, at the Battle of Carchemish, he meets the Assyrians and the Egyptians again, and this time, Assyria is destroyed, and the Egyptians are beaten back. And Babylon now becomes the big power in this region. And as part of the winning, he won Judah too. So Judah now becomes Babylon's. Nebuchadnezzar owns Judah. Okay, are we all okay? Are we following this? Okay, Syria's gone. They've gone away. Now, stage two of this. <laughs> the king of Judah is a guy called Jehoiakim. Um, and he's not very nice. He's a terrible king. And... He is talking to Jeremiah at the time. And Jeremiah is saying to Jehoiakim, 
submit to Babylonian rule, don't rebel, God is causing this. But of course, he he refuses to listen, and then he makes an alliance with Egypt. It's actually probably Egypt's fault. Egypt are probably stirring everybody up, causing trouble, so that the Babylonians won't come and kill them. And Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon. So, Nebuchadnezzar comes down to Jerusalem, and he besieges Jerusalem. And at some point in this siege, somehow, the Bible isn't entirely clear, Jehoiakim dies. And then, they basically, the new king, Jehoiachin, his son, um, surrenders to the Babylonians. So this new king, Jehoiachin, is now taken into exile to Babylon, along with Ezekiel and a whole thousands of more other, um, basically all the best people in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar takes home with him. And then Nebuchadnezzar makes his uncle, Mataniah, king and renames him Zedekiah. Um, If you've read Daniel, you'll see that this is actually something Nebuchadnezzar does a lot. He renames people. Like he renames Daniel, he renames Daniel's friends. And it's basically a sign of ownership. Like you're mine. I decide what your name is. I, I own you, you're my slave, essentially. So that's who Zedekiah was. Zedekiah, even in his very name, means he was a slave of Babylon. He wasn't just a vassal, he was less than a vassal. He was meant to be, just like Hoshea was, this puppet ruler that Nebuchadnezzar had put on the throne to rule Judah for him. And so Zedekiah was actually the weakest and king in all of Judah's history. He was a puppet ruler. He was owned by Babylon. And all the best people that could help him rule were now in exile in Babylon. And you're left with the worst people. Jeremiah described them, said it, all the good figs have gone to Babylon and all the bad figs have stayed in Jerusalem. And so all, <laughs> the, the worst people to rule the country are ruling the country at this time. Is that clear? Good. So basically their lives are mirrored. And it's interesting, the last two kings are in exactly the same situation. Both of them became king after this, a disastrous war which robs their country of wealth and prestige and freedom. Both of them were never meant to be king. They were not the heir. They were not the next in line. Hoshea wasn't even a part of the royal family. They never meant to be king. Both of them were made king, not by God, not by the people, but by a foreign ruler, by Tiglath-Pileser and Nebuchadnezzar. Hoshea was a vassal, was a servant of Assyria. Zedekiah was a vassal, a servant of Babylon. And both of them were very weak compared to all the other kings that have gone before them. So you could say, it's kind of unfair on these two guys. They were always going to have a very hard situation. They were always in a more difficult position than any other kings before them. Um, You can almost say, like, what hope, what chance did these last two kings have? 
to being good kings. Well, they did have a, cho- a hope. And, and that's because you still had the prophets. The prophets, as we've been looking through this series, it's not just about the kings. Actually, the book of Kings seems to talk more about prophets than it does about kings. Uh, the, the middle of the book is de- dedicated to Elijah and Elisha. And the kings are kind of bit players in their story, not the other way around. Um, so you have the prophets active in Israel and Judah. For Hashir's time, he did not have a prophet directly talking to him. But only a generation before, you'd had Hosea, Amos, and Jonah, all active in Israel, in the northern kingdom. And all of them had written books. Um, it's very unique. The type of prophecy had changed. People had decided, started to actually write prophecy down rather than just orally because... Um, Literacy rates had gone, had expanded throughout the world at this particular time in history. Probably, actually, ironically, because of the Assyrians. Um, And actually, more and more people could read and write at this time. So God said, don't just say it, write it down. So the message can be for more people. And so you had these books, you had these stories about Amos and Jonah and Hosea, in Israel at the time of Hoshea's reign. And, they, and Hosea and Amos in particular had both said, the Assyrians are going to judge Israel. And this is Yahweh's doing. This is Yahweh's judgment on Israel because of their two major sins, the idolatry and their injustice. So their lack of love towards God and their lack of love towards their neighbors. These were the two major sins of Assyria, of sorry, Israel, Assyria too, but of Israel, and Assyria was going to be God's hand of judgment on them for these sins. Now, most of these books are all about doom and judgment. It's like basically Amos is doom, 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 hope, right at the end. Um, but they all have messages of hope, but they are much smaller <laughs> in comparison to the message of judgment. But they do both contain hope. And there's hope in actually submitting to the judgment of God. To submitting to God's will for Israel and repenting and returning to him. There's hope in it. And Amos actually gets even more specific and he says, the hope of Israel, ironically, is in Judah. Because the hope of Israel is in the line of David. In that famous part of Amos that God will will restore the tent of David. The house of David will be restored. So the hope of Israel was in the line of David, a son of David. So there was this message in Hoshea's time Israel. The Assyrian rule over Israel is God's will. Don't fight it. But there's hope. There's hope if you, is if you repent and return to him, there is hope, and there is hope in the line of David, in the house of David that Israel had rejected. So basically, if you return to the, to the actual kings, the line that I chose for you, you also will return to me. And, the, and, we will, and the relationship will be restored, and that's where your hope is. Zedekiah had a bit more of a direct message. He had Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 
was ministering all the way through these last kings, from Josiah all the way down to Zedekiah, Jeremiah was active in Jerusalem. And his message was very similar. Similar to being to to Jehoiakim before him, submit to Babylon. Don't rebel against Babylon. Don't make the same mistake and go back to Egypt. Don't rely on Egypt. Submit to Babylon. This is God's judgment. But again, there's a lot of hope in Jeremiah too. And the hope, well, there's there's, there's three, I, I think, real big hopes in Jeremiah. The first one is that the exile would end. The exiles would come home. And that's, of course, funnily attached to one of the most famous verses in Jeremiah, which, all, which we all love to quote. For I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you. But we forget the second half of the verse, which basically says the plans of God are to keep you in exile in Babylon for 70 years. So we like the first half of the quote and we use it all the time, but ignore the fact that God's plans were 70 years in exile. Uh, so there is hope. The exiles would return, but it's going to take a long time, 70 years. But the other great big hope in Jeremiah is the Jeremiah talks a lot about the new covenant. The hope for Judah, for Israel now, was not actually in their own covenant that they had because they've broken it, they've rejected it. But their hope was in a new covenant that God was going to make with them, a different covenant one that's a covenant of the heart, like the wonderful phrase in Jeremiah that says, I will write the Torah on your heart. That's what the new covenant is going to be about. It's going to be on your heart. My words are going to be a part of you. And the final hope that he talks about is a new Davidic king. A new son of David will rise, a new king from David's line, which will bring this new covenant which will bring this new kingdom. And that's where their hope lies. So they all had this, I think, a similar message. Submit to what God is doing. There's hope in repentance. And there's hope in the son of David. That's the message to both of these kings and situation. Unfortunately, their response was quite different. Hoshea did not submit to Assyrian. What he did, as soon as Tiglath-Pileser died, he broke off the arrangement with Assyria, made a new alliance with Egypt against Assyria. So exactly what God had told Israel not to do. Don't go back to Egypt and submit to Assyria. Hoshea does both. And Zedekiah does exactly the same. He looks to Egypt for help, and he breaks off treaty, he breaks off relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. He rebels against him. So both of these kings do exact opposite to what God is telling them. Now, as a quick side note, this little story is actually the big story of kings as well. Because that's what all of these are doing. The tragedy of this book is what Israel was meant to be and what the kings were meant to be and what actually happened and the difference. 
Um, Yahweh was meant to be the true king of Israel. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. Yahweh is the king of Israel. And he says in Exodus, You shall be my treasured possession amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall to be, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God was king. Israel were his servants. But they weren't just any old servants. They were priests, a nation of priests. And their job was to show God to the world. Their, God, their job was to, as Yahweh, their relationship with Yahweh grows, with the blessings of the covenant, the world was supposed to see the amazing place of Israel and say, we want to be a part of it. We want to know your God. Tell us about your God. I mean, that's why you have that Queen of Sheba story at the beginning of Kings. That's what was supposed to happen all the time. Um, foreign kings were supposed, and monarchs were supposed to come to Jerusalem and say, this is amazing, tell us your secret. And they tell them about Yahweh. That's what they were meant to be. But then you have this picture. This is the only depiction that we know about of an Israelite king. Can you guess which one it is? It's a bit hard to see, actually, isn't it? No, no, I mean, which one, which figure is the, is the king? Yes. The guy in the middle, on his knees, on his face. That's Jehu. It says underneath Jehu of the land of Omri. It's Jehu, the king of Israel. And the guy next to him, he's bowing down, you can just about see, is Shalmaneser III. And he was a king of Assyria. So the only depiction we have of an Israelite king is groveling on the dirt in front of an Assyrian king. And for me, that picture sums up the whole book of Kings. They were meant, Jehu and the others were meant to be in that position, and that figure there on the left is meant to be Yahweh, their true king. You know, they're being bowing and kneeling before and submitting to their real king, to God. But in reality, that's what they did time and time again. They submitted, they bowed, you know, at this point against God's will. <laughs> they bowed to the other nations. They went to the nations. So instead of knowing God and then the nations coming to them, to finding out about God, they just went to the nations and wanted to become like them. Ezekiel puts it like this. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. So the idea is, instead of actually bringing the nations closer to God, they actually meant that the nations went further away from God. Because Israel had blasphemed Yahweh's name amongst the nations. Like when they looked at Israel and Judah, why would any other nation want to serve God? If you look at what was going on in those kingdoms. So God, that's why God was angry with them, because they had blasphemed his name. And there's loads of examples of this throughout the book of Kings. Any time when the king, instead of looking to their true king, looked to the nations. Solomon, 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 Solomon. Why did Solomon have so many wives? 
because most of them were marriage alliances with other nations. They were princesses, the biggest one being the queen, the princess of Egypt who became his main queen. So he made all of these alliances to be in good relationship with the nations around him instead of trusting in God as his main alliance. And the nations would then come to him. Instead of make, waiting for the nations to come and be friends with him because they want to know God, he went out there and made them his friends, their way. Asa, when he was in trouble from, from Israel, Israel was attacking Judah, instead of turning to God, Asa turns to the king of Damascus, gave him money, please help me. Omri, a very bad king of Israel, also made an alliance with the king of Phoenicia. And because of that, part of that alliance was his son Ahab marries the king of Phoenicia's daughter Jezebel. And because of that marriage alliance, Baal worship becomes established in Israel. Around a couple of years later, Jehoshaphat, who's a reasonably good king in Judah, he also makes the mistake of coming into a marriage alliance with Israel and marries off his son Jehoram to Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah, who eventually would almost kill the entire David's family and became ruling queen for seven years. Jehu, we've just seen paying tribute to Assyria. We've just talked about earlier, Ahaz offers all of Judah on a plate to Tiglath and says, we are your servants. Menahim, king of Israel, did the same a generation before Hoshea. Even Hezekiah, the good king Hezekiah, he showed the Babylon envoys around the treasure halls of the, of the temple, saying, look how much money we got. We can be in relationship together. We can be alliance against Assyria. And then his horrible son Manasseh was a very, very good vassal of Assyria and looked to Assyria for help all the time, which is one of the reasons why he was so evil. And there are more examples. Throughout the book of Kings, instead of looking to their true king, they looked to the kings of the nations. And so judgment falls. Yes, judgment falls. For Hoshea, King Shalmaneser V of Assyria invades Israel. Samaria, the capital city, is besieged and Hoshea is captured. Shalmaneser dies and there's a new king called Sargon. Under him, Samaria falls, the capital, and Israel is taken, and Hoshea and the rest of Israel are taken into exile and scattered and lost, which is why we now call, talk about the lost tribes of Israel, because they were scattered around the Assyrian Empire. For Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. Jerusalem is besieged. The Egyptians actually do turn up and help, but they're not very that much help because they lose. Zedekiah is captured. Jerusalem falls. The temple is destroyed. And many more exiles are taken to Babylon. For Zedekiah, the fate is even worse. Um, Zedekiah and his sons are captured by the Babylonians. And the last thing that Zedekiah sees before they put out his eyes are all his sons being killed. And he's dragged off in chains and dies in captivity in Babylon. Called this bit Fallen Messiahs. Messiah, of course, 
was actually the actual name that the Israelites gave to their king, the anointed one. Because that's how you became king. You weren't crowned, you were anointed. So the kings, so Saul, ironically, was the first Messiah, um, the king of Israel. So these two Messiahs had failed. In fact, all of them had failed. Instead of leading their people back to God, they led them away. These, um, the way Micah describes it is the kings of Judah and Israel are the shepherds of Israel. And the shepherds of Israel do not lead their sheep very well. They do not protect their sheep. Instead of leading the, na- God, instead of leading the nation to God's and then to the nation's, what they did is actually lead the people away, to, away from God and to the nations in exile. They did not listen to the prophets, not follow the law, and so the covenant broke and they failed and fell. Right at the end of Kings, this is the situation. It's not a very good one. The land, the promised land, is gone. The people are in exile and it's ruled by foreigners. The nations of Israel and Judah no longer exist. The temple, the house of Yahweh, his very throne on earth, is destroyed. The law has been broken. The relationship, it seems, between Yahweh and Israel has been broken. They have broken the covenant. And there's no more kings in Jerusalem. Remember, David was promised this eternal kingdom. There would always be a son of David ruling Jerusalem. But at the end of kings, the son of David was in prison in Babylon. And there was no king in Jerusalem. Kings is a very depressing book. It's meant to be. <laughs> and this is the situation you're in, that the book of Kings ends with. Utter failure. Utter misery. Utter despair. But then there's a tiny paragraph right at the end of Kings, also at the end of Jeremiah, which is very strange, but it's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of hope. It's this. This is actually the Babylonian version of the same paragraph. Uh, so you get the same words you can read in Babylonian text. Jehoachin, you remember that little guy that was taken off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar? He spent decades now in prison. Nebuchadnezzar dies. There's a new king with the awesome name of Evil Meredoc. Um, hey, hi, Evil. Uh, <laughs> hi, my name's Evil. <laughs> anyway, he becomes the new king of Babylon, and he releases Jehoachin from prison. He gives him a seat of honor at his own table, and for the rest of Jehoachin's life, he's taken care of by the king of Babylon. And actually, that tablet is actually the detailed instructions of how much food to give him every day that they found in Babylon, Jehoachin. The son of David has been set free from prison. Twenty or so years later, after, after this, Jehoachin's grandson, Zerubbabel, is the one who will lead the exiles home from captivity, ending the 70 years that Jeremiah talked about. So, 
in a short-term kind of way, Amos was right. <laughs> in the sense that a son of David did lead the people home to Jerusalem. A son of David was set free, and a son of David came to bring them home. But Zerubbabel was not a king. Obvious where you go next. <laughs> the true Messiah. The gospel writers directly quote Micah. He is the true shepherd. The true shepherd who leads his people back to God. He is the son of David. The king of kings. Our king. And I think even though kings ends with a tragedy, that those messiahs failed. Where it points to is this journey that Israel was going on to produce the true Messiah, the real son of David, the eternal son of David, the one that God was talking about when he promised David, what God had in mind, Jesus, the real king. And to end, just want to show you one more slide because... We talk a lot about the gospel and what the gospel is. And when you ask people what the gospel is, most people will talk about you know, salvation, forgiveness of sins, these kind of things. But actually, if you read closely in the New Testament, that's not what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. But it's not what the gospel is. <laughs> the gospel is actually a lot simpler. And luckily for us, Paul writes it out in a nice short paragraph in the beginning of Romans. And this is me kind of summarizing it here. The gospel is about Jesus, the son of David. Oh, that shouldn't say by the spirit on the right there, left there. That should say by the flesh. <laughs> okay, son of David by the flesh. Um, interestingly, son of David, that is a thoroughly Jewish expression. We've just talked about it. It's completely connected to the messiahs of the Old Testament. But Jesus is also the son of God by the spirit. Interesting then, the phrase the son of God is not a Jewish expression. It's a Gentile one. That was the title that you gave the emperor. Particularly the first emperor, Augustus, because it was a part of his name. Augustus, the son of God, because he was the son of Julius Caesar. So when you say son of God in the first century, they automatically think Augustus, they think the emperor. So Paul uses an imperial expression to describe who Jesus was by the spirit. Raised from the dead, Christ the Lord. That's a summary of what the gospel is. Christ the Lord. Christ, of course, is the Greek translation of Messiah. This Jewish expression, the anointed one, the king of the Jews. Lord is a Greek translation of a Roman word, dominus. And dominus was in a Roman expression meaning lord and master. That the head of the family was the dominus. Had complete control over the family. So, Paul, so the New Testament... Gentile expression to describe who God is. He is Lord. Messiah and Dominus. 
the king of the Jews, the king of the Gentiles. This is the real king. This is the true king that kings was always leading up to. Um, The little kings, the little messiahs, they failed. But where God was taking Israel was the true king. And the gospel is simply this. We have a king. Christ is Lord. He is our king. And he brings us things like salvation, (laughs) forgiveness of sins, blessing, all those things. But the gospel message itself is that we have a king. Christ is king of the world, not just Israel, but all nations. And so what these little messiahs failed to do into bringing the nations in relationship with God, Jesus does in himself and through us. And our job, we are his temple. He lives in us, and it is our job to bring the kingship of Christ to all nations, to to show the world who their real king is. Um, We often, it's right to pray about our own leaders and our own rulers and worry about them at times. (laughs) Um, Seems a lot of that going on today. Um, But I think it's always good to remember who is the real king. The king of the nations was true back then, and it's true back now. He is our king. Amen. Okay, let me pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are our king. That you, Jesus, are our true king, and we can always trust in you. Um, Help us to learn from the tragedy of kings. Help us to learn in our own lives that actually when it comes down to it, we put our trust in you. Yes, we can have help from so many people, but when, at the bottom line, you are our salvation. You are our king. You are our Lord. You are our master. And so let us always rely on you. Let us turn to you first, to know your will, to know your way, and to have true kingship over our lives, so that we may invite more people into relationship with you, and so that your kingship will grow to every heart. Amen.